Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Folks, on today's episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about abandoned amusement parks. Well, okay, one abandoned amusement park in particular, but that amusement park is Six Flags New Orleans, which is possibly the best known derelict theme park in America. Today I'm joined by Jake Williams, the creator behind Bright Sun Films, which produces YouTube shows like Abandoned, Cancelled, and Bankrupt. Jake is also the director and writer of the recent documentary, Closed for Storm, which covers the birth of the Jazzland theme park, its rebranding as Six Flags New Orleans, the catastrophe that led to its closure, and the impact that had on the community. Maybe you're familiar with the basic story. Six Flags New Orleans was flooded by Hurricane Katrina, and nearly 18 years later, it's still closed. If you're asking yourself, why didn't Six Flags reopen it after the storm? Why hasn't the property been reused for something else? And what's it like wandering around a massive overgrown theme park filled with wasps, boars, snakes, and alligators? This is the episode for you. I'm Matthew Christopher, and you're listening to Abandon America. Jake, I am really excited to have you here today. I really appreciate you making the time to speak with me about your documentary and your work. For sure. Like I said, just a, a really exciting thing. I, I enjoyed Closed for Storm so much. And by the way, I want to call it Closed for the Storm so bad. Yeah, so does everybody. <laughs> I bet. I, I'm sure that's uh, quite the cross to bear. <laughs> but I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I think it was something that was both informative about the park. I thought it also was something that really captured what made it special and magical to people. And I also like the fact that you told a lot of different stories that surrounded it. And one thing I wanted to point out before we get into this, for all the people that have recommended your work again and again and again to me, this movie in particular, there may be a lot of people that aren't familiar with your YouTube channel that should be. So, I mean, that's something that if you're listening to this now and you've just seen the documentary, like go out to YouTube, go to Bright Sun Films, because I think you just have a lot of amazing documentaries on there. I really enjoy the urban exploration videos where you're just going through abandoned places because, you know. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's urban exploration. Of course, I'm going to enjoy that. But I, <laughs> I, I think the um, the documentaries are really special in the sense that there's not a lot of other people doing that right now. So I guess I kind of wanted the way I wanted to set this up was I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the history of Six Flags first, and then mm -hmm. why you chose to do the documentary, how you did it and your work. And starting with that, why did you choose Six Flags for the subject of this? What was it that made Six Flags the one that you were like, okay, this is going to be the full movie? Well, I had covered Six Flags a long time ago on my own channel, uh, just going through a brief history of it, maybe a 10 minute video or whatnot. And it was not very good. But uh, I had known about Six Flags for a while. I think I the first time I saw it was through Adam the Woo, I think when he uploaded his video in I think, 2011, it was. And the idea that there can be an, a massive 
abandoned amusement park in America at the scale of what Six Flags was and then the fact that it was owned by this massive company and there's a an enormous history behind it and you know there's a lot of suffering from the event that happened and Six Flags is now the byproduct of that you know as it stands today as this abandoned theme park it's it's the byproduct of Katrina it's and I guess the theme of the film was that it's uh a lasting monument of what had happened in New Orleans but the topic has always been super interesting to me. So I, I think when I explored it in my YouTube video, it wasn't really enough. And I, I don't think it really got the, the full scope of the story. So I thought when we wanted to make a film about Urbex and, and, and talk about a place that, that has been abandoned and, and see it through the lens of a more cinematic uh, format, I thought Six Flags New Orleans would probably be the, the best location to do it. And yet it's also a place with a very short history that must have been a little challenging when you're telling the story there's a park it really only functioned for five years right you could look at basically any any big abandoned place in america any asylum any hospital uh, whatever anything and it always has you know 50 75 years of history to to look back on so like i said it, the park was only open for a number of years and it was really only conceived in the mid 90s if my memory is serving correct. So yeah, it's like a, it's an interesting sort of abandoned place because it is so new. And I think just based on that, it, I always find it interesting. But uh, yeah, I mean, there was a whole lead up to the the park opening. You know, there was a, a dream by just one man, not a corporation, which is always interesting to see. And it, it opened as a local theme park, which doesn't really happen anymore. And I guess it doesn't happen anymore because it did fail. And then it was bought by Six Flags, of course. And, but I guess the real meat of the story is the Katrina event and, and how that all played out and the tumultuous future it would have with legal battles and, and city not knowing what to do and still not knowing what to do with the property all these years later. So, yeah, it's a, it's an odyssey, but I guess in a way the, the story is quite simple and, and pretty short. And I, I'm not sure if that's a detriment to the film, but I think it's it's definitely an interesting way to to tell a story. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just think that would be a bit of a challenge, but you really found a lot of information on it. So when you're talking about it being conceptualized and them planning this park, what was the idea behind that? Why were they thinking it would be a good location for it when in retrospect, it clearly was not? So the idea, you know, I haven't even really posted these. There's one uh, piece of concept art in the film. Maybe there's two pieces of concept art, but we, we haven't really posted it publicly it was lost in the archives of the library that we had to scrounge up but we found the original proposal for the park and basically the idea for the the owners were there was really no theme park in that general area i think the closest one was astral world in texas so it, it was far away so the idea was that they were going to take i think somewhere around 150 to 200 million dollars and build out a local style theme park and try and draw in everyone around Louisiana and Mississippi and maybe a little bit of the panhandle of Florida and Alabama. And the idea was that all these people would come here for, for their vacation and it would be a, a destination spot. And I think in retrospect, they built in the east side of New Orleans. It was very out of the way, uh, you could say, from everything else. There wasn't a lot of infrastructure to support it. So in the end, what they had built 
was never really going to work. And I think when Six Flags came in, who who bought the park in the early 2000s, they, I think, knew that as well. And when the park was destroyed by Katrina, they saw the writing on the wall and, and chose not to repair it and, and fix it up and bring it back open. So the original idea of it was they're going to have this theme of jazz history of the area. Could you tell me a little bit about how they wanted to represent the history of jazz in the area through the park in the original jazz land? It, it was very well laid out, honestly. It, uh, they had a very good idea. There, there were a lot of incarnations of the park. The main one had an enormous plot of land. It had a, a hotel and a water park and a, and a campground. And that was obviously scaled down to what originally opened, which was just the Jazzland Park. And it was themed on different parts of the Louisiana area. There was a, an old theme park that had long closed. I believe it closed in the 80s called Pontchartrain Beach. And that was going to be its own little area. That's where actually the Megazeph was in that Pontchartrain Beach area. And then there was the Jazz Plaza, which is like the main street of the park. I know there was the Cypress Point, which was themed after the swamp area. And then there was the Mardi Gras area with the dark ride Jockos. So it invoked a pretty genuine theme of New Orleans and Louisiana history, which I think for most people that were going there, I think that they succeeded with that. And although they did have some pretty terrifying costumes for mascots. If you look up uh, the original Jazzland uh, mascots, they're pretty horrifying. The first year they were pretty successful, right? The stat that I have is they had like 1.1 million visitors, but by the next year, it was half of that. Why was that? Why did they lose so many visitors between the first and the second year? Yeah, the park opened with a lot of enthusiasm, but that that really tapered off. The first detriment, I think, to the park was the fact that they didn't have a year-round opening. They actually closed during the winter, even though it was in New Orleans. So you're still talking like maybe 60 degrees or 55 degrees outside, which is, I would think, still fine to go to a theme park. But that already took months off of their, uh, their operating schedule and, and lost income. That went through even through the uh, Six Flags era. So I, I found that strange. But the, they also didn't have any canopies. That drew a lot of people away. There was no shade. And if you know New Orleans in the summer, it gets very hot and very miserable out. And to that point, too, they didn't have a water park. They were about to announce a water park, but that never happened. And I think all of those combined, they didn't get the attendance that they wanted. They didn't get the people coming from Alabama or Mississippi, you know, driving three, four hours to go to Jazzland because they're, you know, it, it was more of a regional park. It was it was meant more for uh, a summer's weekend in New Orleans. And that's really when when it was only popular it was the weekends in downtown New Orleans. And the weekdays were slow. And the company which owned Jazzland didn't have the cash reserves able to keep the park afloat. And they they went into debt and that was uh, that was it for Jazzland. Right. And that was after two years. That it, was two years. Yeah, just a little under two years, I believe. It's amazing. If I'm remembering correctly, that was their only major amusement park, right? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. For for miles from uh, it really. That's what that's the whole point of the business plan. You know, they had thought that all these people were going to come out from Alabama and Mississippi, and they were all going to converge on New Orleans, but that it just didn't end up happening that way. It seems wild to me that they did not include a water park. In New Orleans, it's it's pretty shocking. I, we filmed the documentary over the, I believe it was mid-June 
of 2019, 2018. I don't know. It was the most miserable I think I've ever been. It was unbelievably hot. So I cannot imagine going to a theme park with no shade, with the majority of their attractions being outside. Yeah, that's that's got to be a, a humidity nightmare for a lot of people. And I, I can totally understand why people would not want to spend their whole day walking around a humid, vastly hot park. So in 2002, two years after it opened, it sold to Six Flags. They have a 75-year land lease, right? And they do like $20 million of upgrades. They add the Warner Brothers theme, and they reopen in 2003. Can you tell me a little bit about that transition? Like, what did Six Flags bring to it in terms of changes? Because they kept a lot of the themed rides. There was still the same sections and the Jazzland overall feel, right? Right. Yeah, Jazzland stayed pretty much the same at its core. Six Flags brought in a few new attractions. They they opened the Batman ride, which was this whole DC area of the park. They integrated some of their, their IP, like SpongeBob and Looney Tunes, into the park as well with the kids area, which I, I don't believe the kids area was there prior to Six Flags takeover. And they added canopies, which was very welcome for everybody. Right. So they they spruced up the whole park. They They brought in a lot of much needed additions to the park to make it into a a true weekend theme park that I think would be enticing enough for for people to go. And not only that, but it was the Six Flags name and it was the brand. So you're you're bringing in their reward system, you're bringing in their whatever you would call Six Flags quality, but you know, it is a corporate backing of a lot of money. So there's lots of potential for new attractions down the line and People were expecting that water park to come in with Six Flags funding. So you know, there was a lot of promise, a lot of hope for uh, for what Six Flags could do for Jazzland. Yeah, that's the the plan was for the water park addition. But then, as we know, Hurricane Katrina happened in 2005, right. and that closed the park for good. Basically, it was under four to seven feet of water when the lake overflowed. What effect did that have on the park? I mean, obviously not a good one, but why was that so <laughs> catastrophic? What's funny, too, in the film, we show a snippet of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, their land assessment for the property from the original Jazzland proposal. And the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, they, they say that the land is a suitable dry piece of land that, that will not be prone to flooding. And of course, what ended up happening was when the levees broke in New Orleans and much of the east was completely flooded, the lake in the middle of, of Six Flags New Orleans just couldn't bear the the weight of the water and and it flooded it, it flooded several feet the pump station which was actually at the edge of the parking lot was overwhelmed and i believe it went offline sometime during the storm so the whole property and the surrounding area the forest everything was just completely consumed by water and when you think about it you know nobody at the park knew that this was going to happen obviously uh, nothing was really prepared for the storm, at least uh, for flooding. I think some windows were boarded up and whatnot, but buildings were completely swamped with water, gift shops, sewage treatment, just everything in the park was completely underwater, under salt water, in fact. So as one of the park employees, Ryan, explains in the film, the midways, the, the concrete, the coasters and all that, they looked fine. It was all steel and they were slightly above above the level and all that. They weren't going to be affected. But what was really the issue was all the backstage stuff. You know, the treatment facilities, the the administration offices, they were all filled with water. They were all made of wood. So it was 
with sitting water for several days, I think even weeks, you know, you can only imagine what water damage and high humidity can do to a to a property. And we saw this through New Orleans everywhere, but it's the same thing that happened there. And it made a minor storm into a several million dollar repair bill for Six Flags. One of the things that was in the documentary that really struck me when I went there as well was going through the rooms and seeing a line on the wall. Oh, my God. And being like, oh, oh, that that's it. That's it right there. That's where the water was. It was really kind of sobering because, I mean, at that point, I hadn't really seen anything indicating that that right. would be a thing that I would encounter. It's shocking when you see the water lines in there, it, especially when you're standing right up next to it. I'm, you know, 5'11", and it's it's like right at my eye level. And I, I just couldn't believe, I couldn't fathom that much water being there sitting there for so long it it's shocking it's one of the only places you can still see the remnants of the the infamous water lines in new orleans it, it it's truly insane after this happened they determined that the place was going to be a total loss and they said that the majority of the rides were too damaged to to really reuse they took a couple rides like the batman ride out of there why didn't they take the other rides when a lot of them seem like they actually, as you pointed out, like the steel ones didn't seem like they would be impossible to reuse elsewhere? Yeah, it, it is strange. I think while there's no public acknowledgement of this, I think Six Flags briefly mentioned it in their, uh, I believe it was 2007 annual report. They only mentioned that they were taking some rides and they were basically writing off everything else. Uh, Six Flags is going through pretty much a bankruptcy at the time. They were deep in financial debts. Um, they were not willing to repair the park and bring all their, their employees back. They had just decided to, to scrap the whole thing and try and negotiate out of their deal with the city and their, their lease. So I think they, they did their own cost assessments, and while it probably would have been profitable for them, I think they, they had just decided to give up on the park. They, they had essentially bigger fish to fry at that point with a burning company. So uh, that's that's just the way it went with Six Flags. That was also one of the things that I learned from your documentary that I hadn't known before was that when Six Flags noped out, they were already thinking about leaving the park, according to you. Yeah, that's pretty well guessed uh, by a lot of people at this point. I, I think it's acknowledged that this wasn't the park they had thought it was going to be. Uh, it didn't perform as well. It was making money, but not to the point where Six Flags was willing to take it over. Six Flags was purging a lot of parks at the time, uh, just like Astroworld at the time, which was ironically the, the closest park to them. They completely demolished the entire park. They didn't leave anything left with that one. So it, it puts you in the mindset of, of corporate at the point where they had just scorched earth at that point. They They wanted to rid their assets and get their profitable parts moving even quicker because the company was burning down at that point. So they have a 75-year lease at this point, and the city doesn't want to just let them out of that. What happened with that? There were a lot of lawsuits back and forth. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, what we know is that Six Flags wanted out of their lease. They had already internally chosen not to revamp the park. They were going to reopen it. Uh, they were either going to be forced to sit on this abandoned property or they were going to get out of their lease. 
So we don't know exactly what happened, especially how much money was exchanged, but they were negotiating with uh, the mayor at the time, Mayor Nagan, who was, I, I think, uh, he was pretty fond of the company at that point. You know, he attended the the opening ceremonies. He was he he was a supporter of Six Flags and whatnot. And I think while we don't know the the full dollar exchange, I think they got a pretty decent deal to get out of their 75 year lease and the the property then was transitioned to the city and as we know the city hasn't been the best caretakers for the park and they're left with what remains now well let's take a quick break and when we come back i want to talk a little bit about what is left there now and also the making of the documentary When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Matthew Christopher, creator of the Abandoned America book series, website, and the podcast you're listening to. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're enjoying it so far. If you are, and you'd like to support the podcast and help keep it going, there are three things you can do that'll really help out. The first is simple. Just tell your friends and family about it, or leave a positive review on your podcast platform if they support it. Good word of mouth makes a huge difference. Second, if you'd like to hear early episodes and see exclusive essays and photos that aren't on my website yet, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash abandonedamerica. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash abandonedamerica. Third, if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, just drop me a note at admin at abandonedamerica.org. That's a-d-m-i-n at abandonedamerica.org. Every little bit counts, and I've got some really exciting episodes that I think you'll love coming up. Don't forget, you can also visit my website, abandonedamerica.us, for tons of photo galleries and background info on hundreds of abandoned sites, or order my two Abandoned America books from your favorite retailer. All right, so we're back now, and we're going to talk a little bit about the period after the park was abandoned. At this point, the city owns the property. There's not really any clear indication of what to do with it. Demo was estimated at 1.3 million, which actually sounds really low to me. And there's this talk of demolishing and reopening the park and a bunch of different ideas for it. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the different ideas for the reuse of the park? Yeah, so initially, there was going to be a mall. So before all of that, I should preface that the city has gone through multiple different meetings and assemblies to try and figure out to, to try and find a developer to take the land and rebuild on it. Now, the city has taken the stance that they want to find a suitable 
respectable developer who's actually going to make it happen. And in the film, we interview two different people, one who does have a, a very feasible, very realistic plan, and another that maybe has a, has a bit more out there plan to rebuild the park as a theme park and open it re- up as Jazzland. Now, through the years, there have been several different developers that have come through and tried to bid for the city to let them take the land and, and give it their shot. Uh, there was a, a mall project that ultimately went nowhere. There was another one where I believe they wanted to build a hotel complex and water park, if I'm not mistaken. Is that the Dreamland Festival Park? I believe so. Yes. Yeah, uh, I believe that went nowhere. There was also a Nickelodeon project, which I'm now remembering. Yep. Southern Star Amusement Parks and Nickelodeon Universe. Yeah. Who were briefly partnered with Tanya Pope, who was the the person I mentioned earlier with the Bring Back Jazzland campaign. But of course, yeah, that, those just went nowhere for either for lack of funding or the city did not find them to be a, a suitable developer that's actually going to make it happen. But ironically, I think the criticism you can put on the city is the fact that while they have been very picky on who they're going to take, at the same time, they're, the park has been sitting there doing nothing. It's been abandoned. It, the only use outside of all these plans has just been a filming location for different projects. You know, Louisiana has a great film tax credit, so it's a popular place for film and television to, to shoot. And Six Flags has been the backdrop for, uh, for a number of projects so far. Right. I have a list of those projects. Mm. Uh, Jurassic World, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Deepwater Horizon was filmed there. Reminiscence, which was actually pretty cool because I recognized the park in it as, uh, as opposed to like <laughs> some of the other ones where it's just the parking lot they're using. Right. Percy Jackson and the sequel No One Wanted, Killer Joe. So yeah, I mean, that's something where they're they're doing quite a bit there with filming, but it does seem odd that all of these developers have ideas and yet none of them are moving forward. I mean, I realize that the demolition costs are a lot and that they'd want to make sure that the developers are going to have the funds to actually complete it. But at the same time, if you're shooting down everybody, then nobody's doing anything. Yeah. So I think that's the moral and economical crossroad that everyone's been at. And that's, I guess, where the the film sort of ends at a, a moment in time where the city had supposedly chosen someone or had planned to choose someone. But even now, as history has repeated itself numerous times with this, this whole project, once again, you know, the city is placing their doubts in the developer who we, we actually featured in our film. So it, it's a, it's a never ending merry-go-round of <laughs> doubts and uh, plans that just never go through. So it really feels like the Six Flags property just is never going to be developed. It's pretty demoralizing, especially for people who live around the area. I think those are the the biggest victims of this whole thing. Yeah, that was one of the aspects of the film that I really liked was that you focused on the fact that here you have all these people that live around the area that this is really impacting their quality of life. Yeah, I, I wish we spent more time on that, honestly, in the film, because it, it it's an interesting aspects of abandoned places that you you don't necessarily think about. I remember uh, I was doing a video on Dixie Square Mall in Illinois. And as I was concluding my research on that, I was curious as to how much the homes around that building were actually going for, because 
if you know anything about Dixie Square Mall, it's it's this very rundown mall. It's demolished now, but it was this very rundown mall abandoned for several decades. Probably one of the the oldest abandoned malls. And the property looked awful and the surrounding area wasn't much better. And I remember looking at the home value just like across the street from the the abandoned property and the homes were like $40,000 for a three bedroom single family home and it blew my mind that it's a part of the story you don't think about you know the people who are affected by properties that are blighted or properties that are in the middle of a neighborhood that are that are abandoned it affects the people around it and it's the same case for Jazzland. There's a, a whole subdivision right next to the property. As remote as it is, there are people that live very close by. And the person we talked to in the film, Kenny, we we got up on his porch and we interviewed him. And just in the background is this abandoned, vast parking lot and the abandoned roller coasters in the background. It you know that's his backyard now. And as he as he explains in the film, he was promised that this was going to be a you know, the next Disneyland, it, it was going to be this massive draw of development near his home and his property value is going to go up. When in fact, the opposite happened, you know, he's now living with this curse that is forever going to be bringing his home value down. And I think for that fact alone, this is a, a massive piece of property that's affecting a good deal of people that are uh, causing consequences in untold ways. As I said, I like that aspect that you were focusing on it because I'm sure for someone like you or me, aside from the, the home value part of it, the idea of having an abandoned amusement park in your backyard sounds awesome. Right. <laughs> you know, I would love that. But the practicality of it in terms of people who just want to live their lives and aren't like weird people that just want to go and abandon amusement parks all the time, that's not so great. And you also pointed out in the documentary that the home values in the rest of the city had been steadily increasing, but not there. Yeah, everywhere but there. It's very annoying. Uh, as much as I would love to, to also live behind an abandoned amusement park, I think the visuals for me would be interesting, but everyone else who's not a freak, I think would agree that this is pretty detrimental to them for a lot of reasons too. You know, he told us many stories about how, as you know, the urbex culture around Six Flags has only grown for years. And everyone finds a way to get into that park somehow. And he'd tell me stories about how he'd find people on his property just climbing his backyard fence to get get into the property. Like, people were very brazen about it. And I'm sure that would get annoying for a good majority of people for more than one reason when you have an abandoned amusement park behind you. Oh, absolutely. That's one of the things that I think when you look at the urban exploration scene, there are a lot of people that don't consider just general politeness. Yeah, how you're affecting other people. Right. And so then that's bad for everybody too, because you have a guy who maybe would be like, oh yeah, whatever, who cares? It's abandoned. Go in and, and take a look at it. It's no skin off my back. But then when you have people that are climbing his fence, he gets angry about it. And then all of a sudden, like these people are like enemies and they want to report them. I mean, I, that's the thing that I just see again and again with places where if people were cool about things and didn't have to make it a problem for other people, then it wouldn't be a problem for other explorers. Yeah, and it gives you a bad rap to it. You know, it's it's it doesn't look great on everyone else. And in the documentary, I really got a kick out of the part where you had the two explorers that you were talking about the demolition of the park with. 
And they were pretty much like, yeah, well, we'll believe it when we see it because they've been talking about that for years. And that is the way I think everybody looks at this, right? Every year or three, you hear, oh, they're going to tear the park down. You get like a little wistful about the fact that it's going to be gone. And then you remember, oh, wait a minute. They've been saying they're going to do this over and over again. Right. We uh, we interviewed Troy Henry, who who was the lead developer, who the city ended up choosing as as the lead developer for this project, just maybe a month after the the film came out, Troy's Bayou Phoenix is his company, and he was selected. And I think maybe three weeks ago, a news article just came out doubting that this was going to happen, saying the city was about to drop him as a developer. So it's just like one after another after another. It's the same news cycle over and over and over again. We're going several decades now with this abandoned park, and nothing has happened to it. It's it's insane. Yeah, I definitely am used to that cycle with abandoned places in general, where you hear a story that they're going to tear it down and you kind of get to a point a after a while where you just roll your eyes and say, OK, well, when it starts to happen, I'll believe it. But inevitably, sooner or later, it does. And then you're sad because even though, you know, it may be better for the people in the area or it's better to reuse the property. You do get kind of emotionally attached to places, I think. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I've made my peace with it. I would absolutely go back in a heartbeat if I had the opportunity. But I feel like Six Flags has been covered and documented well enough that I'm willing to part ways with it. I'm willing to to see the property go and and actually have some use or even just get demolished for the sake of the people nearby. You know, I want to see people have their neighborhood back in a way. I, I, after meeting uh, Kenny, I, you know, I felt very bad for for the situation that they didn't choose to be in, but they've had to become this like ridiculous caretaker of the north east side of the property. It's just it's so silly. It's it's ridiculous. One of my close friends was going there to photograph it and had a gun pulled on him by one of the security guards. Security guards absolutely are armed at all times there. Yeah, I think Brian and Michael, the proper people, I think they had a gun pulled on them there too recently. If I'm not mistaken, I think they went back uh, not too long ago. So yeah, I heard about security that. there are, are not messing around at this point. They're so exhausted with it all. Well, sure. And, and in a way, I mean, you kind of can't blame them for no. that. And in terms of some of the dangers on the property that I think maybe would be good to talk about, you've snakes, boars, alligators, you know, which are actually a, a pretty legitimate threat to sure. people who yeah. are on the property. Did you have any encounters with any of them while you were filming? You know, honestly, there's only one gator that I know of. It's it's one that hangs around in the middle of the pond and the security guards feed them on a daily basis. So there's one small gator that we know of that always comes up at a certain time of day. But in terms of boars and, and everything else, we didn't really encounter much in terms of threat. I think if you're walking around in the, the swampier areas, you're probably more at risk. Uh, we saw one moccasin slither through the the midway and i'm i'm probably most afraid of water moccasins if anything else but other than that we we got pretty lucky with wildlife if anything we saw more people just wandering around the property uh, than anything else 
Yeah, I'm somebody that like when I'm anxious about something, I research it. So I'm reading about alligators beforehand, which was not a great idea. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, they can go up to like 30 miles an hour. They launch themselves out of underbrush in the water and will sort of surprise grab you and then yeah. do that flip thing to break you into pieces and tear parts of you off and then drag you back into whatever. And so as I'm going around, I'm, I'm like, this whole place is underbrush or water's edge stuff. I mean, it's, it's kind of an alligator ambush paradise in that sense. Yeah. At one point when I was by the flume, there was probably the pond that you're talking about. I was looking out over that and I saw an alligator in it and he was, he was kind of giving me like this side eye thing. And it was actually a little comical because it's sort of like if you imagine a person looking at you out of the corner of their eye and trying very covertly to walk sideways <laughs> over to where you're at, but also being totally obvious about it. That's kind of how it felt. And I wasn't at a point where it would actually be able to get up and get me with any amount of speed, but it was still a little creepy. I don't know. I feel like if you live in that area, they're like wasps or something to you or, or bees. I guess alligators are the bees and crocodiles are the wasps. But yeah, I, I think it's it's much worse if you're there by yourself. I, I think it would double doubly worse if uh, you're at, there by yourself at night. I think that's when uh, when I'd probably start freaking out from gators and everything else. For the majority of the time I was there on my own and at dusk was we're like okay you have to go now i, I yeah. actually had permission through the city which I'm, I'm assuming you did too the one video that you shot was at night so i was guessing that maybe that was before you got permission from the city and then you actually arranged it for the documentary no we actually uh, we had three full days full permission from the city we had we had everything set to go with that yeah, no, we, we shot uh, all three days, full days from 3 a.m. in the morning to about 10 at night. And then I think that one day where we shot at night, we we got there at maybe 6 a.m. to to film the sun sunrise and film the sunset and, uh, and do some of the at night exploration, which is something that I wanted to do uniquely for the film because I knew it hadn't really been done before in the way that I wanted to do it. Oh, okay. That's interesting. I'm a little jealous then. Because yeah, at <laughs> about dusk, they were like, okay, that's, it's time to go now. We were definitely pushing our limits with the security. I'll, I'll say that much. They definitely wanted us to leave, but uh, I, I was getting my money's worth from the city for sure. Oh yeah, exactly. Well, that's, <laughs> I'm glad that you didn't have any, you know, bad experiences there or anything. All right. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about projects that you have coming up. All right, we are back and let's talk a little bit about the making of this documentary. And, you know, at the top of the episode, I asked you what had drawn you to this, but what got you into the documentaries to begin with? You were originally doing a gaming channel, if I'm correct. Oh, you're right. It was, uh, it's, it's been a long road to get here. No, I, I've always had uh, some minuscule interest in filmmaking. And I, I think I, I used to make movies on iPad too when I was when I was much younger and we'd mess around with all that kind of stuff but I've always had an interest in telling stories that were never necessarily told in their format you know I 
River Country, Disney's very infamous water park uh, that was abandoned for many, many years, it had never really been covered before on YouTube. And I, I remember watching Adam the Woo's video on it, just exploring the property, but not with really any context or history behind it. So I, I wanted to make something of my own to build out a documentary that I would want to watch on YouTube for something that I am uniquely interested in a very niche genre or a niche story to tell. But it turns out people are also interested in hearing about things that they never would have heard about prior, you know, discovering new things in the world that that are interesting and, and learning how things come to be and how they can ultimately fail and what lessons you can learn from that. So my guiding uh, philosophy had grown over the years. And uh, it turns out I really love making all types of media. I love making documentaries, and I'm really interested in making narrative projects as well. And we'll see where that goes eventually. But the the idea for Closer Storm never came to be as a feature length documentary. What I was really interested in doing is making a YouTube video at Six Flags. And I wanted to do it in a more cinematic format. And to do that, I, I knew I needed to have permission from the city. Uh, and once I got it from the city, it was my producer and my orchestrator, Matthew Leeds, who had convinced me to talk to his friend who's a post-producer in Los Angeles, and they might be able to make out a, an actual feature-length documentary with this project. And the rest is history. The, it turns out uh, that was a good idea. <laughs> and I guess that's how it all came to be. Now, a number of your documentaries that you do focus on abandoned theme parks, do you find that they tend to do better? Do you think that they have a special attraction to people? Like, what is it that draws you to them? Yeah, I think there's always a, as you know, as a photographer too, exploring abandoned buildings, I think there's always a nostalgic piece of history that you can get from from exploring things that are very familiar to people. You know, even if it's like a McDonald's, there's still something intrinsically interesting about seeing something that you know whether regardless if it's fondly or not it, it, it's still a memory that you have it, it's something that you know so well and when you see it abandoned it's a very poignant very visceral experience to to see it all and i think abandoned theme parks are like a really great representation of all of that i think you you get a lot of nostalgia it's a place that's supposed to be very happy and meant for your enjoyment. It's part of the entertainment industry. It's it's something that you don't ever typically see as an abandoned property. So Six Flags is, of course, like the, the pinnacle of that. And it's always been very interested. In and I think that's been my draw to make that type of content. And it, it's a personal interest of mine, which is why I've been making it so whether it's Disney or, or anything else, it, it's interesting to see when something doesn't work and is locked in this perpetual state of, of limbo. I love the mini documentaries. Again, I mean, I, I enjoy urban exploration videos simply mm -hmm. for the fact that they're urban exploration videos. But the documentaries, I think, are just really excellent in terms of the overview that you give. And, and one of the things that I had sort of wanted to point out about them, too, that I really appreciate is that they're not really sensationalized, which I like. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people do that. A lot of people that are focusing on abandoned or closed places are kind of like, oh, I have to sex this up with stuff that didn't happen or things that aren't necessarily true. And I think you managed to 
have them be really interesting and really compelling, but at the same time, they feel like they're well-researched and accurate, which is not always an easy line to walk. No, I, I really appreciate uh, that. Those are extremely kind words. And I, I know it's very, very easy for a lot of people to to sort of take the paranormal route or take take whatever sensationalization uh, with this type of genre or uh, niche. But I, at the same time, I think there's a lot of channels that are doing really great stuff. Uh, a lot of photographers like yourself and, and videographers like the proper people that do incredible work on documentation and bringing what is really interesting, which is the property itself, the building itself into the, into the public realm. So I, I think our collective work is always going to be interesting. And the documentation is, I think, genuinely important for the future and, you know, to, to look back on, on these incredible places, whether or not they're forgotten and, and uh, remember back to a, a different time, a different state of time as well. In terms of Closed for Storm, that was one of the things that I think you captured really well is just how meaningful, even though this place is only open for like five years, this is a place that people have really fond memories of, they really cared about, they were emotionally invested in, and it's meaningful to them. And and that was really well conveyed. My wife, when uh, we were watching it, actually shed a few tears for the oh, part. Wow. Yeah, yeah, she she really liked the documentary too. Now, I, I will tell you, Wes, you know, go to your head that it's not super hard to <laughs> get her to shed a few tears, but nonetheless- uh, you I'll know, take it. <laughs> right, take it as you will. <laughs> but no, I, I thought that was something that you really captured a greater sense of the story overall and some of the outside factors, like the people who live there, the development, the story of Hurricane Katrina itself. But then there also was a lot about why the park was meaningful to people, even though it was only open for that amount of time. Yeah, it's it's all about nostalgia, right? Even at the very final moments of the film, we really played on what it was like for someone to experience it in their youth and enjoy it and, and see it where it is now. You know, the, the Closer Storm isn't perfect. There's a lot of faults with, with the film. It's my first film, and there's a lot of things I would change. But I think at the core, the idea was always trying to remember back to something that once was and show the parallels of what is now. And I think that was always the, the guiding philosophy to, to look back into this sort of gloomy state of nostalgia. And I think that uh, that goes for a lot of abandoned places. And I think that that plays into a lot of people's emotions for abandoned places as well. That actually is a pretty good launch pad for one of the questions that I had for you, which was what challenges mm -hmm. did you face when you were creating it? And is there anything you'd like to do differently if you could do it again? Oh, God. <laughs> I could give you a list of 300 different things, but uh, I'll say that Closer Storm was always like a passion project. I, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I, I don't have any formal training in, in filmmaking or anything else. It, it's, uh, you know, we were learning as we were going. Uh, so the production of it all was very haphazardly put together. You know, again, it, it wasn't really ever meant to, to be a feature film. It was supposed to be a YouTube video that we we had figured that, you know what, maybe we should actually try and make something a bit more special here. And I think we did a really good job at that. I, we spent a lot of time filming the park. Again, there's a thousand things I would change about that. We didn't, we didn't shoot everything right. We didn't have a formal uh, director of photography on, on the set. You know, we, we didn't, <laughs> there were a lot of story beats that I wish we could have spent more time on. Uh, you know, I really wanted to focus more on the human element, the, the emotional element of it all. 
But, you know, my, gu- my guiding philosophy at the time, I was very, I was looking at it a very analytical side. From YouTube, you would, you would know that I'm, you know, I, I focus much on the, uh, the facts and the, the analytics of it all. And, and I think that clouded my judgment as a filmmaker. And when you're trying to tell an emotional story with humans, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of got messy in that way. So I, I made a lot of mistakes with it. And there was a lot of great constructive criticism that, that we got from the film. So round two, when that comes up, uh, I think we'll, we'll make a, a much more well-rounded film. But what we have now, I, I am very proud of. I, I'm, I'm very proud of everyone that worked on Closer Storm. And I think there's a lot of great parts of, of the film that I'm, I'm still, I'll still stand by forever. Ambrose Bierce defined creation as the death of endeavor and the birth of disgust. <laughs> and that is something that has always really spoken to me because whenever I look at a project, I'm always like, oh, I would have done this differently. I would have done that differently. But I also have to remind myself that I'm seeing the vision that I had for it in my head, which is always going to be better than the thing that I produced. But other people are seeing the thing that wasn't there before it was created. And so they're evaluating it based on those merits. And like I said, I mean, I I thought you did a really terrific job with it. Talking about some of your YouTube series, you have bankrupt, abandoned and canceled. Can you tell us about the difference? How, How do you pick which one goes where? So uh, Bankrupt mainly focuses on companies from General Motors, their bankruptcy in, in, I believe it was 2009, to failed businesses in retail, JCPenney and and, uh, whatnot, where uh, Abandoned focuses more on the buildings themselves. You know, that's where I talk about River Country and uh, Walt Disney World or or any, literally any other abandoned building you can think of. Cancelled focuses on stuff that never happened. That's another thing that's always interested me. It's it's uh, the possibility of what if, uh, the possibility of of something great, but had never uh, never really worked out the way it had intended. So I, I think that it's a pretty good divide. Bankrupt and abandoned can get mixed up sometimes since, for instance, if I'm covering something like Sears, you know, there's 400 abandoned Sears stores out in the world, but it's also in a bankrupt company. So it's, it's an interesting balance you got to do. And it's sometimes they end up in the same, uh, in the middle of a Venn diagram. So you gotta, you gotta figure out which category to put them in. How long did the mini documentaries take to make and how many people work with you on them? So it takes about two weeks from the beginning to end. Obviously I'm not working on it every single day necessarily. I used to be a one-man show, but more recently we have a few people that have come on to be part-time researchers. They build out a uh, an outline research document for me, just the the key timeline points for me to expand on in the in the actual script and and go from there as a jumping off point. But everything else, you know, narration, editing, everything else that comes with that, it's it's all uh, it's all me. So, it's a very time-consuming bit of media to put together, but I think that's what makes it a little more authentic. And I think it's it's what sets it apart from like a discovery show or something. Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, I think that that personality shines through in them. And it feels more personal than something where you have a boardroom deciding how you're going to do different things. Let's say that somebody's just watched Close for a Storm. And they want to get into some of your other series on YouTube. What would you say your favorites are? And what are like a good starting point for somebody if they're coming at it? 
man, if you're le- if you're watching Closer Storm, you got to have some interest in abandoned theme parks, I would say. So my suggestion, I, I really like my uh, abandoned River Country video, which is an abandoned water park in Walt Disney World that no longer exists, but it did for many, many years, many decades, in fact. It's a video that I love making because it it puts together all these different pieces of media that you would never find elsewhere online. You, you can search and search and search, but you would never find the right piece of media, the right piece of the story to put together. So I think it's it's videos like that that I put together that I think covers the overwhelming history of, of it all and, and puts together all the highlights. And I think that's really cool when I'm able to educate people or, or have people learn new things, even stuff that I didn't even know about when I started making the video. I think that that's the kind of stuff that I, I really think is cool. I enjoyed that too. I, I really enjoy when I'm researching a place and learning about it. I think that's kind of what has guided me is not so much being an authority on every subject, because I'm interested in too many for that to ever really happen. It's more each place gives you an opportunity to learn about a thing that's interesting to you, condense that information, and then hopefully share it in a way that is interesting to other people. Yeah, and if you're a theme park fan or a a fan of retail in America, anything, you know, it's it's a way for you to be able to drive down the street and say, oh, hey, that, that used to be a circuit city, or... Yeah, any other thing. It's it's interesting and it, it expands your knowledge of basically the world because, you know, retail, theme parks, everything, it all it all has much broader nuanced themes to it. And uh, it's all influenced by economic and social issues in the world. And it, it all comes together. So it's, uh, you know, while you may be talking about a niche, very niche subject, it might actually have some wider knowledge to be learned from. So looking ahead, do you have any plans for any more feature-length documentaries? Yeah, we've been working on a few different uh, projects right now. It, uh, some have worked out and some haven't. It's all about finding the money and finding a partner to to take you on and all that. Closer Storm is completely self-funded by me. And I ideally don't want to do that again. So we're looking at different partners and and finding new ways. We've had a We have a few projects out there in the marketplace right now. And None of which have been purchased yet, but we'll see where it goes. We are actively working on a bunch of different ideas and projects, some of which really work with the with my established audience and and with the topics I've been talking about for a number of years, and some haven't. We'll see what uh, what eventually ends up happening, but the sooner the better, really. <laughs> and you've also launched Bright Sun Travel. Yeah, that's really new. I did a review on uh, the Disney Wish, Disney's new cruise ship, and it's basically like. 45 minutes of me absolutely just, just completely tearing it apart, but in a very honest way. And I, you know, I, I give credit where credit's due and I, and I'm honest about what I think is bad about the ship. And I, I structure it in a f- similar format to the the documentaries and the, you know, the higher quality stuff I like to do. So I think people really liked it and people had been asking me to, you know, make it separate channel, just talk about your honest opinions on these different things and, and make it into a high quality format. So I'm going to do that on, on this new channel and we'll see how it goes. But so far, so good. You got to watch it. You're going to, if you keep poking Disney, one day you're going to wake up and it's going to be a Donald Duck pushing a pillow down on your head. You know, <laughs> I'm waiting for a lawsuit from Disney. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to be here and to you know, share what you're working on with people. And again, I, I really thoroughly would recommend to people who are listening to check out Bright Sun Films on YouTube and 
dive into some of the places that you have happy memories of because you certainly will find them there. There's just uh, everything from like JC Penney and Montgomery Ward and Fry's Electronics to a variety of malls, hotels, shipwrecks. So I think you would be pretty hard pressed to find something that didn't catch your attention there. Hopefully there's something for everybody. Yeah. Well, Jake, I really appreciate you talking about your work with me and I wish you the best of luck with the projects that you're working on in the future. I can't wait to see them. I mean, whenever your next feature film comes out, I'm, I'm definitely going to be right out there watching it as soon as I can get to it. No, I, I really appreciate that, Matthew. I think this podcast is a, a great avenue to explore opinions and, and ideas from the community. I, I have enormous respect for, for the Urbex community and yourself. You've been doing great work for so long now, and I appreciate you having me on today. I, yeah, thanks. Well, that's it for the episode. Thanks so much for listening. As always, if you go to AbandonedAmerica.us and click on the podcast tab, you can find the show notes, which have links to Jake's Bright Sun Films YouTube series and the Closed for Storm documentary, as well as the gallery of photos I took in my time at Six Flags. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll take a moment to leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts, follow the series, and share it with a friend. I've got some great interviews coming up, and I'm also going to be working on shorter story-based episodes, too, for those of you who only have 10 or 20 minutes. I'll be back with more in two weeks. See you then.